Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring medical physics with the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic dominating news stories across the world. I didn't want to concentrate too much on that but with healthcare in the news so much at the moment I thought it'd be interesting to look at the way that physics is involved in healthcare. The physics world has long since covered medical physics, but it's been a while since we've had it featured on the Physics World Stories podcast. And so, with lockdown still restricting our movements, I got in touch with Dr Heather Williams, a principal medical physicist for nuclear medicine at the Christie NHS Trust Hospital in Manchester. The Christie is the largest cancer hospital in Europe. We treat patients from mainly the northwest of England, but actually all around the world for um, some specialist treatments. We'll hear from someone on the front line in healthcare who's also pursuing a PhD in ultrasound modalities, and we'll hear from someone instrumental in developing the proton therapy treatments at the Christie Hospital. But first, here's Dr Heather Williams. If you just think about modern healthcare, um, it's absolutely jam-packed with really complicated technology. And the job of medical physics and clinical engineering is to really understand that technology very well and hence how we can use it to greatest advantage. I mean, like any bit of tech, you know, you pull it out the box and it has a load of factory presets and they may or may not work for you. And to a large extent, that's the same with a lot of medical equipment, that there are things that you can change and adjust and tweak. And, you know, what are the best settings for your patients or to treat this particular type of disease or to uh, take a picture of that type of condition? And that requires a really in-depth understanding of how that equipment works and also what you're trying to achieve in using it. And that's what medical physicists and clinical engineers largely do, is they're technology specialists. And their job is to work out how to optimise the use of medical technology, as well as being largely responsible for a lot of the safety aspects um, of of using that tech as well. So on a normal day-to-day basis, what would your work life look like? I think one of the lovely things about working in medical physics is that there isn't really an average day um, because every patient is different, every scan is different, every treatment is different because we are working with people who are very individual and have individual needs. And the whole point of our expertise is that we can adjust to look after that person in a personalised and bespoke way. And we do have a lot of different expertise in our department so it really depends which department you're in what your day looks like so even within nuclear medicine you will have people who are specialists in the therapy side some people are specialists in imaging some people are specialists in radiation protection so even a medical physicist in nuclear medicine will not necessarily do the same thing in every single department having said that um We do a lot of checks to make sure that the equipment is performing as it should. Uh, We do research and development work, reviewing our current practice, and maybe we can adjust certain settings or features in the equipment to improve that. We're looking at bringing in new techniques and how that can be done safely. Uh, We're doing uh, research 
um, investigating how we can bring in new treatments, new types of scan, um, and also keeping tabs on the amount of radiation that we're using, the amount of radiation that staff are exposed to and the patients are exposed to, to make sure that we keep that as low as possible. And there's obviously the, the usual uh, replying to email, sitting in meetings and drinking tea that uh, everybody has to do. <laughs> um, so I, I, I want to come to how it's changed, but I'm just interested on the, the radiation side of things. So how do you, if it is getting too high, what's causing that and how do you bring it down again? I think in general, we want to be working in a situation where that doesn't happen, um, that you have checks and balances that mean you know exactly how much radiation you're giving to patients and you know that this is within safe limits, well within safe limits. And also with staff that you have the appropriate shielding in place, you have um, working practices that mean that people keep their distance from radiation sources, you have a department that's designed to facilitate all of that. Um, so a lot of what we're looking at isn't really sort of great big sort of disaster doses um, that might hit, you know, the news. Uh, it's a big nuclear accident kind of level of disaster, uh, but more, you know, can we do this better? Um, how come this individual is getting a higher dose than their colleagues? How come this procedure is associated with a higher dose than other ones? Is there anything we can do to pull it back and still get the information that we need? So there are situations where things go wrong with equipment, where there's a spill of radioactivity in the department that we need to control. Um, but all the time we're working well back from the kind of disaster doses that you're used to you know, reading about in the news. Um, it's more a case of controlling it because people are in that environment all the time, if that's their job. I've been in nuclear medicine 20 years and my professional exposure would be quite significant if I wasn't working carefully all of that time okay that's good that's interesting to know so but it's it, obviously your working day has changed um it's changed like the rest of us although probably in a different way to the rest of us can you tell us how COVID-19 the lockdown etc has been affecting your work so being in a cancer hospital, it's a slightly different situation. Uh, we are continuing uh, to treat patients because cancer hasn't heard about lockdown. It's not taken three months off. And we're continuing with radiotherapy, with uh, selected chemotherapy, with diagnostic scans and with urgent treatments. And there are some things that have been put off that can be put off and other things that have just had to carry on because they can't wait and also with our patients being extremely vulnerable, um, if they were to catch the current coronavirus, we have been really, really strict with infection control from the very beginning. And so there's very few people allowed into the hospital unless they absolutely have to be there. There's very strict social distancing. We've all, all been wearing masks for quite some time. And... In terms of the physics team, we've actually only had the people on site who really, really need to be there on that given day. And everyone else has shifted to working from home. And our IT team have been amazing in setting us up with laptops and uh, Microsoft Teams and various other tools to help us keep working uh, from home. But in terms of actually looking after individual scans and looking after bits of equipment, you do actually need to be in the building some of the time. Um, so it's not a case that we can just fully shift uh, to working from home. And talking to other people who manage nuclear medicine departments up and down the country, this is 
fairly similar to the kind of response that they've had. In centres that do an awful lot of heart imaging or imaging of other body systems, their workload has dropped off dramatically because routine imaging for other conditions has been delayed to create space for responding um, to uh, patients who've got coronavirus. So as patients are having you know, follow-up appointments for other conditions put back, obviously the scans that would normally be requested on the back of those appointments are also put back and their workload has dropped off um, significantly. We've seen a bit of a drop, but it's, it's still enough to keep us plenty busy. So when you're in the hospital, you're not, are you seeing a big difference in terms of footfall around the place? It's been very quiet in March and April. In March and April, at the height of the outbreak, we were only having patients on site if they really, really desperately now needed to be here. Um, but now um, more routine work is picking up and certainly we're resuming work that was put on hold uh, back in March over the next month or so. So there's, I've seen reports, and I think you've just spoken to this really, but I've seen reports about uh, radiotherapy, people who have got radiotherapy or um, appointments, um, well, there's fewer people coming to them. That's the mix of what you're talking about in terms of they've actually been delayed. And I assume some people are not coming because they're worried about going to a hospital. It's a mix of things, really. Um I mean, our oncologists have done a fantastic job in reviewing each patient's situation and saying, for this person, is it more risky to give them a treatment that would suppress their immune system in the middle of a pandemic? Or is it um, more risky to leave them without this treatment with regard to managing their cancer? And those are very hard decisions and very painful ones for the patients, obviously, who are expecting a certain treatment path. Our, our oncologists have reviewed individual patients and tried to make the decision whether doing a treatment now, which would potentially suppress their immune system, would be more damaging than delaying that treatment or choosing a different type of treatment at the moment. So we have seen patients who are managed differently because the risk of them getting the current coronavirus would be catastrophic. Um, but we've also seen a drop off in the number of people uh, being diagnosed um, with cancer. And I think that reflects um, the initial messaging, which was stay home, protect the NHS. So when you would normally think that doesn't feel right, that doesn't look right, I'll go to my GP, people were too scared to go and stayed home. And in particular, the lung cancer specialists are very concerned that people with a persistent cough will put that down to having coronavirus rather than it potentially being an underlying lung cancer. So you probably recall probably about a month ago there was a lot of uh, messaging in the media about you know if you've got something that you think is urgent do come and see us uh, because the hospitals are still open. Um, and that, I think, has helped sort of turn the tide a bit. And we are seeing the numbers of patients coming through for initial diagnosis beginning to climb again. Um, so I think there was an initial phase of everyone was like, I'm not going to leave the house under any circumstances. I'm not going, going nowhere near a hospital. And that is beginning to come back to what we'd normally expect, that people who 
need urgent care are seeking it. It's really interesting to me to see this because it's it, it's a really obvious um, reaction to what the government says, what people in power say. And I think it's really interesting to see just what an effect those people can have when they when they do speak and how important it is that when they speak that they're honest and careful about what they say and it's worth bearing in mind and the whole you know weekly clapping on the doorstep has kind of borne this out that the nhs is the one thing which the british public will rally around um, across the political spectrum, it's the one issue that you'll get unity on. And if you say protect the NHS, people are like, yeah, of course, I don't want to be a burden. I don't want to you know, dump on all these amazing key workers that I clap on my doorstep every Thursday night. And I don't want to be that person at A&E when I've got an ingrowing toenail and it, I should only be here for you know, having a heart attack. And I think that messaging has initially went a little bit too far and people stayed away when they shouldn't have done and at the moment we're working quite hard to try and counteract that initial um, impression and as I said the data is that it's beginning to work and people are going to see their GP and people are coming for diagnostic scans and we're seeing those numbers begin to climb again but we're certainly not back up to the levels that we were seeing in sort of February and early March. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting quirk in statistics for years to come, isn't it? And sort of in terms of diagnosis and then a lot of diagnosis coming afterwards. And I'm glad I'm not a statistician. Well, I think we'll see probably in um, the kind of patients who present in the next six months to a year and whether their disease is much more advanced than we would expect, how much of an effect this has had. And we can't really say how big an impact it's had until we've got that kind of information. Okay, right, we've talked about how um, COVID-19 is affecting medical physics and the NHS generally and people, but is medical physics going the other way and having an effect on COVID-19? There's been a lot of work amongst clinical engineers in particular um, in developing systems for, uh, in particular, delivery of oxygen um, because uh, coronavirus uh, patients, when they're in intensive care, have a lot of fluid in their lungs. It's really quite an unusual and stark appearance if you look at any of the CT scans. And because of this, the amount of oxygen that needs to go into their lungs for them to still have enough oxygen in their blood is quite significant. It's a lot higher than it would be for many patients in intensive care. And the delivery of that is not necessarily best done during using a ventilator. Um, So there have been clinical engineers who sort of used almost adapted scuba masks um, to provide quite a, a natural breathing environment that is very oxygen rich and an almost like individual oxygen tent kind of approach. And there's been a lot of innovation in hospitals in partnership with industry in developing oxygen delivery systems that could be rolled out very, very quickly over a large number of patients because ventilators are very expensive and we don't have an endless supply of them. So they have to be used for those patients who really need a ventilator. And if what they need is just enhanced oxygen delivery then there are other approaches to that well uh, listen let's 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 
continue with the positive theme and uh, I, what what's exciting you at the moment in in medical physics um i think we're actually at a time when there's an awful lot of exciting tech coming out and um medical physicists are no different to most other physicists in that we like new toys and um if you sort of look at their press around uh, manchester and the christie in particular uh, you'll see that in the last 18 months, our proton beam radiotherapy service has gone live and that is treating patients from around the country. Um, but the other big thing that happened in uh, Manchester in the same year, which didn't get enough press, uh, was the installation of one of the first digital PET scanners um, at Manchester Royal Infirmary. And for me, as a positron emission tomography, that's what PET stands for, uh, specialist, that's actually as exciting um, as the proton beam therapy. No offence to my colleagues in proton beam. <laughs> the digital PET's a bit of a misnomer. And um, whenever the, one of the lead physicists um, at Manchester Royal, Ian Armstrong, uh, hears this name used, he kind of loses his temper a little bit um, because it's not it's not accurate as a description. You know, all modern medical imaging is digital. We use digital detectors. Uh, the days of the film that you put on a light box are long gone. And instead, what it means is that it is using solid state um, detectors uh, to pick up um, the gamma radiation that comes out of the patient. And these particular digital detectors are so much faster um, than the ones we've had before. So with positron emission tomography, what you do is you inject someone with a drug that's labelled with a positron emitter. And that drug will go to a particular part of the body that you want to study. In cancer, we use um, a form of sugar and um, glucose uh, most commonly because tumours are growing very, very quickly. Uh, they have a high glucose uh, transport rate. And so they just suck all this glucose out of the system um, when it's injected and we labelled that with a positron emitter fluorine 18 and fluorine 18 emits a positron that when it decays inside the body and that runs into an electron inside the patient's body and you've got matter and antimatter the two cancel each other out in a burst of gamma radiation actually two back-to-back -back gamma rays and what the PET scanner detects is using a big ring of uh, radiation detectors all the way around the patient is these pairs of gamma rays arriving within a very small time window of each other. So if you can say these gamma rays arrived at the same time, and we'll come back to what the same time actually means, um, then you can say that they originated from the same positron meeting the same electron and those two gamma rays are related to each other. And if you basically draw a line between the two, positron met the electron somewhere along that line. And we collect all of these lines and we put them together into a map of where uh, that positron emitting drug has gone in the body and hence how active different bits of the body are in taking this glucose up. And in cancer patients, that helps us find out where these tumours are that's that are kind of guzzling up all this um, radioactive glucose as they feed their own growth. Uh, so the whole thing about having a faster um, PET detector. So you've got these two gamma rays coming out back to back um, from this positron meeting electron in the middle of the body. 
And in order to relate them to each other, you need to be able to detect them within about six nanoseconds um, of each other. But if you can detect them quicker than that, you can say roughly whereabouts in the body the positron met the electron. Because it's not just saying, okay, they arrive at roughly the same time, but maybe one arrived slightly before the other. And if one arrives slightly before the other, you can say, okay, well, the positron, the electron was in the body was slightly closer to the point where that gamma ray was detected than the one on the other side of the scanner. And if your detectors are really, really quick, uh, current generations of scanners can say, we know where the positron met the electron to within three centimetres in a patient's body. And when you consider that most of us are mm, maybe the best part of a metre wide, that's a vast improvement. And it allows you to cluster the signal much closer uh, to its point of origin. And that's what the current generation of PET scanners can do. That's what the one at Manchester Royal Infirmary can do. It's the uh, Siemens Vision. And it's the fastest scanner uh, commercially available. And it's got a timing resolution of 200 picoseconds. Um, so it's really, really fast. And the dream is that we will eventually get um, PET scanner detectors so quick that we won't need to use fancy maths um, to kind of collect all of these lines of response and then reconstruct them into an image. We'll actually be able to go positron met the electron there with a certain degree of uncertainty and it'll be correcting for that uncertainty rather than to have having to use all these complicated algorithms to mesh together all these lines defined by the gamma rays. Yeah. That's that's very good, isn't it? I mean, I, it's funny because often when I'm doing interviews about, for example, astrophysics, the, the, the next question is, so, but how is that going to benefit people here on Earth? I don't need to do that now. <laughs> well, that, that's one of the lovely things about medical physics is that I often talk in schools about what I do for a living and the preconception that a lot of students have is that okay I want to help people I want to make people better I'm good at science therefore I must study medicine and the expertise of healthcare scientists in general because actually medical physicists are actually a small subset of the thousands of healthcare scientists that work in the NHS alone and clinical engineering those, those careers are largely invisible. And actually, if you love science and you want to do something positive with it, it's a it's a great choice. I've loved it. You know, I haven't regretted a, a well, I think a single moment would be perhaps an over-exaggeration. But I haven't uh, regretted uh, my choice to do medical physics at any point in my career. And like I said, I'm over 20 years. I know, don't, okay. But I'm over 20 years into, into medical physics. And I don't regret my choice at all. I don't want to do anything else. Inspired by Heather, I wanted to know more about medical physics and staying at the Christie Hospital in Manchester. I spoke to Patricia Amata about ultrasound. The ultrasound is a non-ionising imaging modality. And when we say non-ionising, um, we're comparing it with the ionising radiations, X-ray, CT. The, the radiation are not as harmful as ionizing radiation and we use it basically for different applications we use it for obstetric gyne urology it's versatile it provides lifetime real-time imaging not just real-time it is very convenient it's flexible 
it doesn't require a lot of the training on it. Um, it's subjective to an extent, but um, you don't need a lot of training in it. Um, quite accessible and affordable. And I think the most important thing about it now, it's, it's just the quickest way to assess a lot of um, pathologies. It is becoming more and more versatile as the first call um, to any form of imaging before we go into X-ray and CT. So what's your role in it then? Basically, it is interesting that question because most people wonder what would um, a physicist do in the ultrasound. So we provide physics support or scientific support to the, to the users of ultrasound equipment. So we've got both the doctors, nurses, anyone who uses ultrasound and we provide training on how to maximize the settings on the ultrasound scanner. We also um, carry out acceptance tests for new equipment before or just when they've been installed just so we're, we're sure that you're getting exactly what you wanted. We adjust the advanced settings, we make sure you're getting maximum um, optimized images from the equipment and we also provide preventive uh, maintenance where we kind of service them twice a year just check that the image quality is still good and is providing um, clear pictures and users are happy with it they also come to us when they want to upgrade and they think um, they need help in maybe getting approval um, we will then carry out an assessment on the equipment saying it's still good or it's not good enough Okay, so what kind of improvements are we seeing then in ultrasound? Right now, ultrasound, it's moved from when it was more discrete elements. Now it's more of um, applications and we, we don't do a lot of repairs on ultrasound now. We do it because it's more computer-based. The whole console is computer-based. So we're moving um, now not just from real-time. We're expand First of all, is the advanced imaging we have a lot of applications now on ultrasound. We're talking about uh, multi-beam, where the beam or the radiation is kind of refined in a way that you, you just for clearer pictures, cohesion of the images. Different companies call it different names, but it's more in that line where we have harmonic imaging, where we're imaging at a higher frequency just to eliminate, eliminate noise. Um, we also have this um, other thing where we can measure pressure or tension. We use it for breast screening. It's now applicable in ultrasound kind of where we can use to detect any pathologies in the breast. It could be benign or malignant um, tumors. But again, ultrasound can be used in connection with other applications to compare images. Urology, um, we use ultrasound alongside other applications just so we reduce the amount of radiation going to the patient. Has the COVID-19 sort of affected what you're doing? Recently, I did. Um, I had to do what I said training on a long, is it long ultrasound? We don't normally do long ultrasound. We don't even have departments that call themselves long ultrasound. But due to the COVID, and the cardiac departments have now sort of shifted to long ultrasound because they're finding that um, point of care, immediate point of care, and emergency, they needed to actually monitor these patients to see those that came up came up with symptoms to monitor them to see if they could send them back home or keep them in care so ultrasound became very handy rather than waiting for the ct scans that take a long time and they give the patients radiation that are unnecessary so um i researched that and i found that um, ultrasound had a major role to play here 
because um, now instead of using CD, we're using ultra, um, long ultra sound, and it can actually image every aspect of the lung, as long as you are familiar with the artifacts. Activists are typical traits of an image which is common to ultrasound imaging of the lung. So first of all, um, what we're seeing as ultrasound department is that we really need to educate the users on how they can maximize those artifacts and the settings they need to get rid of or they need to make sure that they are on when they're imaging. There are applications that I never knew that um, ultrasounds kind of could provide in terms of enhancing those artifacts. So now I'm in a better position um, to say, if I go into a long ultrasound department, I would say to a user, have you got this application turned off or turned on? And um, so that you can get a better image and you can see your lungs properly. The other aspect we, we're having to look at due to COVID is ensuring um, that um, disinfecting procedures um, um, are established in every department. We also want them to make sure that um, equipment are not borrowed from the COVID wards, and making sure that they were just for the COVID patients and have just a robust um, cleaning procedure. But why should people who are interested in physics be interested in ultrasound? And ultrasound is becoming even more versatile. And I think um, that point of care, the fo uh, is a focus is called point of care ultrasound. It's very, it's becoming the most, well, I said the quickest way of assessing a patient without necessarily um, radiating them with ionizing radiation. As a physicist, we have to be enlightened in this because I think it's the future. Because if you can have an um, an imaging modality that can give you um, a, a quick access, quick help you with the diagnostics, um, diagnostics um, as quickly as possible, provide results, um, accessible, less operators, um, just one person needed to operate this um, system compared to the other systems where you need the two or three um, operators. Um, I think it's very useful at Webby Physics to assess that modality before even trying to send the patients for scan. And we can monitor this patient closely without worrying about the radiation and, you know, make, um, well, I say, assess them and, and make decisions as they go on, whether they're clinicians or physicists. It's very important that we start using ultrasound first or acknowledging just how effective it can help us with uh, with whether it's in physics or in medicine so i have i would say i came into ultrasound quite late but i have this passion for ultrasound and i feel ultrasound is actually dying and this particular covid had kind of highlighted the, um well i say the essence or importance of um ultrasound i mean in third world countries ultrasound is still like the most effective and the most available accessible um, ultrasound um, um major modality but i felt that in recent times here in the uk and other um, developed countries it's been really undermined and uh, this is really good for ultrasound in a way so we can bring it back to um the, the main lights again to say ultrasound is still here and it's going strong and it's going to be the future i believe personally that ultrasound is going to be the future that passion for the topic is common across all physicists that I speak to, but no less so, and perhaps even more so, with medical physicists. 
Imran Patel is the head of proton physics at the Christie Hospital and was pivotal in introducing proton beam radiotherapy to the hospital. Here's Imran Patel. The proton centre at the Christie is the first within the NHS England remit of centres and UCLH would be the second. So we've been open and treating patients since December 2018. Proton therapy is a specific way of treating patients for can- with, with cancer. It's one method by which you can treat patients with cancer. So there's multiple different ways. You can either operate on patients and surgically remove the tumour. You can use chemotherapy. Radiotherapy is the use of radiation and radiation particles to uh, blast away the cancer um, in some way. And protons is one such particle. You can use electrons and photons, which is the routine method. And that's what is utilized in all of the radiotherapy centers. There's very, there are, um, I would say, um, of the order of 50 to 100 particle therapy centers that treat with fo- protons specifically internationally, whereas um, standard routine radiotherapy is used in uh, hundreds, if not thousands of centres internationally. So what, what's the benefit of, of using protons? So one of the benefits of protons is the fact that it allows the, the particle stops. The protons stop um, at a very definite point um, within any medium. So in this case, it would be uh, patient tissue so it allows you to better understand um, or conform to the tumour uh, or target that you're trying to treat. Um, that means that you can either, in cases, increase the dose of treatment that you're delivering to the patient, which um, potentially improves or increases the chances of um, uh, uh, blasting away the tumour, or it... Uh, in, in, in a sense, it allows you to reduce the secondary effects of radiotherapy, which is potentially you may end up delivering some kind of a radiation dose to healthy tissue surrounding the tumour uh, with other modalities. That's not to say that the other modalities aren't appropriate. They are, they, they are very much appropriate in most circumstances, but uh, proton therapy helps in paediatric cases, for example, who may end up living longer and therefore the secondary effects of the treatment itself might be much more important to minimise. So is it a relatively new? It's not. I mean, to some extent, proton therapy has been around for 50 to 100 years. One of the challenges is more around the fact that the technology costs a lot more compared to standard linear accelerators, which are used by photon and electron beams to patients. And that I suppose technological advances have made photon therapy much more cost-effective as well. So proton therapy has been playing catch-up in terms of technological advances. And more recently, spot scanning, which is a bit like firing spots of radiation to conform better to the tumours, has taken off as as an advancement in proton therapy. Um, But the, the magnitude of finances involved it is marked markedly different and therefore it makes um red therapy or photon electron therapy much more cost effective so what's your role i'm a physicist or a clinical scientist which is um the more recognized term i lead the physics team within the proton therapy service so that's um the team provides scientific support 
in terms of treatment planning for the patient treatments, check-in treatment plans, quality assurance of the equipment itself to ensure that it's delivering the radiation beam as you planned. When you say you're delivering one gray of dose, is the machine delivering one gray of dose in the right place? And then service development, ensuring that what clinicians want um, in terms of treating the patient, we're developing the service appropriately. And um, it's it's a bit of a multi-professional group that gets involved. And physicists are one, one such group in in addition to clinicians and radiographers and many other support services like nurses and anesthetics and anesthetists. Um, so the core um, team is built of radiographers, physicists and clinicians. And, and then you have many other support services that play a key, key role within that. Is your role sort of patient focused at, at any time? Are you working more behind the scenes? Um, generally speaking, it's behind the scenes, although um, in some respects, we do sometimes meet patients less uh, less so directly with interacting with the patients, but we um, may be called upon to advise on how best to set the patient up. So there may be a patient being CT scanned, for example, who, in order to then plan the treatment on the CT scan. Um, but as we have more experience in planning the treatment, then we might get called upon how, as to uh, given where the tumor might be in relation to the patient, then we may advise on how best to set the patient up that might make it much more um, reproducible and accurate in terms of daily treatments going forward. So we get, advice, we get asked to provide advice um, on patient setup. And also when issues come, come up during the course of the treatment on, uh, on the proton unit, then we might get called to advise on how best to uh, maybe minimize the uncertainties or reduce the impact of those changes um, on tr- treatment outcome. Is proton physics done and now you're just finessing it or is there more to come? Um, there's, more, there's more to go. Spot scanning is a, is a way of delivering the treatment. Now that's relatively new departments and international centers are trying to learn and understand how to use spot scanning methodology to treat moving tumors. So where you're effectively line painting across a tumor that's moving, how do you treat that more effectively? So there's a lot of development going on in that respect. And then increasingly moving to the future, there's a lot of development being understood and talked about, about how to increase the speed at which you deliver the treatment by an order of magnitude. So that is very much research at the moment. The hope is that being involved with that and the fact that we have a good, at the Christie, we have good links with the University of Manchester and a strong academic team is to bring the clinical team that I'm in charge of and the academic team together to progress with making improvements and advances in prototherapy. So I think there's, there's still a long way to go. And hopefully it will be an evolving treatment that will um, ultimately benefit patients. Was this always what you wanted to do? Medical physics is something I've always wanted to do, yes. And if you look at medical physics broadly, it captures a lot of different areas, nuclear medicine, physiological measurement, um, audiology, radiotherapy. It's vast. Um, And so you really have to understand 
what of medical physics you want to go into. I was quite fortunate in that I did a placement year when I did my um, physics with medical physics degree. And that exposed me to the radiotherapy environment. From that point onwards, I was always keen to then go into radiotherapy uh, as a trainee clinical scientist and then um, progress through the profession. Physics has always interested me. Healthcare has always interested me, and medical physics is a good way of combining that. Many thanks to Imran Patel, Patricia Amata, and Heather Williams of the Christie NHS Foundation Trust in Manchester. It's a place close to my heart, as over 20 years ago now, when I lost my mother to cancer, the treatment that she received and the care that she received at that very hospital was second to none. And I'm sure everybody else who's experienced the care that is given there and across the NHS won't mind if I extend my thanks once again to those involved. I feel sure that we'll return to medical physics soon, right here on the podcast, but next month we'll be looking at something else from this wonderful world of physics. And thank you very much for listening. Physics World.